Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. With your permission, I'm going to get started in the book of Genesis today. Without your permission, I'm going to do that anyway because I don't have anything else for you this morning. So today is going to be an introduction to Genesis, and technically I'm not going to do a series through the entire book. Once again, as I did last time, some eight, nine years ago, I'm just going to do the first 11 chapters. And in my introduction, I'm going to explain why that is a natural division in the book of Genesis. The title of my sermon is, We Need to Get Reacquainted with God. You may wonder how that title fits with a study in the book of Genesis. But you'll discover that as well as I get into my introduction. So there won't be any scripture reading from the first chapter of Genesis today. We'll start that next week. I just want to outline the book of Genesis for you. Gives you give you some understanding of why Moses wrote it. Now I understand that the author of the Pentateuch, first five books, is disputed in some scholarly circles. I'm not going to grapple with that every week, and we're just going to settle with the common notion that Moses wrote Genesis, and that'll be settled from this point out. Whether others want to continue, other scholars want to continue to debate that, that's their business. But it's going to make it a whole lot simpler if I can just refer to Moses and his writings and his intentions. So in this introduction to Genesis, it's important to understand what is the author's intent in what they have written. That's in any book in the Bible. Many of you have read the Bible through numerous times, acquainted yourself with what it says, And at times, made application of what it says to you. But how often have you approached your Bible study and your Bible reading with asking yourself the question, what was the author's intent in writing this? And it gives you context to uh, the epistle, the the gospel, the, uh, the books of the Old Testament. And that's a very important thing to understand to unlock what is being said in these writings. The question might be asked, did Moses write Genesis from a biographical standpoint? And the, question, the answer to that would be, we're certain he did not write this to give biographical information because actually there's too many gaps in there to fulfill that purpose. And even in giving uh, genealogies, It was the practice of that culture not necessarily to approach genealogies the way we do. 
we want to be so orderly. We want to be connected. How many of you uh, do a family genealogy, have a family tree? You trace back where your family came from. If you do that, if you have a character missing, it drives you insane. Okay, we got to fill in the gap. So you get on Ancestry.com or one of these other places and you start searching. Does anybody have information on my family? I can't get this branch filled in. That's very important to us in filling out our family tree, understanding our ancestry. This culture wasn't so concerned about filling in those gaps. They could, they could leap over generations, and we don't see that readily apparent as it's recorded in the Bible in various places. In these gaps that exist there, you can say, no, it, it probably wasn't his intent to write accurate genealogies by our definition and our interest and to write biographies. So then we move to, could the motive have been for Moses to put down in writing something that would be of uh, moral value to us so we can learn moral lessons? Well, you have to remember, we read the Bible against the backdrop of the entire collection of 66 books that we have. So what we understand about what Jesus taught, what we understand about the New Testament, what we understand about other prophets, we use that as a, a reference for understanding the other portions of the Bible. If we did not have that, and we read, let's say, the book of Genesis without understanding more about the attitude of God, would we get any moral lessons from the book of Genesis? Well, the fact of the matter is there's, there's a lot of things that go on in the account that's in Genesis that would leave people wondering, what should we think about that? What should you think about Abraham lying about his wife and saying, this is my sister? Because Moses, the author, doesn't draw this to a moral conclusion and say, therefore, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let this be a lesson to you. Don't ever lie about your wife being your sister. So Moses did not draw that moral conclusion. We can draw a moral conclusion because we understand more about what God expects of us. But Moses didn't draw that conclusion. What do we to think about Abraham? And Sarah, having the promise of God to bring forth the, the promised son, yet taking it into their own hands to decide, here's an idea. Why don't we go get you a concubine and let you have a child by her? Now, according to our modern-day standards, that just flies in the face of all of our moral sensitivities. My wife would not go for that. I can tell you right now, and I understand why. So how do we reconcile this when we read Father Abraham doing stuff like this? Moses didn't give us a moral resolution to that. We draw our moral uh, perspective on it by understanding other things about God we learn from other writings in the Bible. So we throw that one out. He probably didn't write this to give us some moral lessons. And did he write it because he wanted to put down history? Well, maybe to a certain degree, yes. History of the world? No, because when you get through with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there is no more history of the world. I, one of my favorite books that I have in my library is, is a large book about this long and about this wide, and it's a, it's a, it's a fold-out chart, the history of the world. And 
you can see how civilizations developed and branched off starting with Adam and Eve and their children and their children and their children's children and it just branches off. And when you get down to the Tower of Babel, and, and there's another one I'm going to deal with the term as well. You say Babel, I say Babel, let's call the whole thing off. That's the way the song goes, right? Which is the correct pronunciation? There is no correct pronunciation. Dictionaries give you both pronunciations, and so when you get both, you get to choose. Which one do you want to use? Some people like to call it Babel because they associate that with the foreign language that was existing and they couldn't understand each other, so therefore they were babbling, so let's call it the title Tower of Babel. Of course, the spellings are different. Babel uh, is also an accepted pronunciation, and that more or less stems from our, our English uh, ancestors who wanted to call it Babel. So Babel, Babel doesn't make any difference. It's the same place. Had a man kind of chide me for calling it Babel, said we've always called it Babel. Well, that's okay. But coming up to the, to the Tower of Babel, it was after that that we had some of the major civilizations that developed. The Chinese Empire came into being after the Tower of Babel. And uh, the Egyptian Empire came into existence. Greece came into existence after Babel. All these empires come into existence after the Tower of Babel. Moses, after the 11th chapter, after the Tower of Babel incident, doesn't mention them at all. He doesn't mention China. <laughs> None of that. So it couldn't be really a history of the world because after the 11th chapter, then he goes into specifically the story of Abraham. So he gets real narrow on his history. So we would say, no, he, Moses wasn't really trying to write a history for the world because he doesn't, he's not very inclusive of all the details we would want. So there's, there's one possibility, and that is most likely... Moses wrote this to give a record of covenantal history. And what I mean by that is, the first 11 chapters are a story about how God created man and they drifted away from God. And then, at the end of the 11th chapter, we see the end of this, this, this massive uh, flow away from God. Then God picking a man who did not know him, a complete heathen man, and saying, I need to reacquaint these people with me. And I'm going to speak through this heathen man and make him the channel through which they will become reacquainted with me because they have forgotten me. And that's the reason that I have been inspired to entitle my sermon, We Need to Get Reacquainted with God. Because the whole book of Genesis really is about how God made it possible for man to rediscover him. How God made it possible for man to be reunited with him. Because at the 11th chapter of Genesis, man is not united with God. Who among all those people are really prominent godly people? You don't find prominent names standing out 
who are really attached to God and leading the charge for God. They just, from generation to generation, they just dropped him out of their thoughts, their memories, their practices. It was godless. And God has to find a pathway to provide for men to come back to him. So it's the covenants that God developed with men in order to lead them back to him. And that would probably be more than anything the driving incentive for Moses to put this down. He wanted to show how man had strayed from God and God had made a pathway back to him. That is the overarching message of Genesis. That's the message I want us to nail down and keep in mind every time you read Genesis. When you are reading about the creation account, you're reading just a minor detail of a much bigger, much more important story. Don't get lost on the details. When you're reading the story of Abraham, you're reading a smaller detail of a much bigger story. And that is, man lost God, but God found man. And that theme goes from the first chapter through the last chapter in this book. That will always be, should be in the back of our minds as we go through this study in the first 11 chapters. Therefore, you understand why there's a natural division and in the scholarly world it is generally accepted that the first 11 chapters stand alone distinctly in the book of Genesis before it carries on with the establishment of how God is going to use Abraham to bring men back to him. That's the reason we can take the first 11 chapters by themselves. And then we think of the major characters in the book of Genesis because when I say to you like I did today we're going to study Genesis you may have had certain stories and names pop into your mind about oh goody we're going to learn about Noah we're going to learn about Adam and Eve we're going to learn about Abraham and you got all these major characters Cain Abel Abraham and Sarah Jacob and his 12 sons Joseph in Egypt all these popular names there but I want you to, and I'm not going to read much scripture today because this is an introduction. But if you want to take note of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, then skipping to verse 39. And we've got it on the screen for your convenience as well. Then you're going to see something that, that Moses wrote down that explains uh, something about the, the significance, the importance of the history uh, that he has written down as, as it relates to God's purpose. Now listen to what Moses says. Ask now about the former days. In other words, get curious about history. Long before your time, from the day God created human beings on earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? You were shown these things so that, listen, you might know that the Lord is God because in that first 11 chapters, they got to where they didn't know 
that the Lord was God. Abraham didn't know that the Lord was God. A large population of the world didn't know that the Lord was God. And Moses is saying, you study these things, you look at these things, you see how God brought his will to pass. So you know one thing, he is God. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Now, while we've suggested this major division in Genesis from the 11th, first, first 11 chapters and the remainder of the book, there's also smaller subdivisions that are very significant. And that is, obviously, there's the division of the account of creation. And then the next section that follows the creation account is everything that happened before the patriarchs. That goes through the 11th chapter of the 26th verse. And then the remainder of the book is everything that happened to the patriarchs while in Egypt in the 37th chapter through the 50th chapter. And now it's easier to see how chapters 1 through 11, how, form, how they form their distinct unit, the creation, before the patriarchs, the patriarchs in Palestine, I'm sorry, I skipped that point. The patriarchs in Palestine in the 11th chapter through the 37th chapter. And then the patriarchs in Egypt in the 37th chapter through the remainder of the book. <clears throat> now, if this is a book about discovering God, then you begin to see the parallels in what happened as Moses put these to record. With what is happening today. I submit to you, and I don't think I'll have any objections, America has forgotten God and needs desperately to rediscover God. That's our problem. We have forgotten him. We've ignored him. We've denied him. And we're in the same problem they were in in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They were living and doing and working and creating and, and multiplying, but God was not a part of their lives. And you can see that more and more shaping up in our nation today as God is being scrubbed from everything and he's not a part of so many people's lives. We need a rediscovery of God. We've ridiculed his timeless word as being antiquated and irrelevant. We've scheduled God out of our busy lifestyle. We've convinced ourselves that we are completely self-sufficient and have no need of any other higher authority for our success and our well-being. We've taken God off the throne and replaced him with philosophies and materialism and famous people that we idolize. We need to rediscover God. Because without him, our ship is going down. Now let's look at a little bit at prepping for the creation story. As I said, I'm not going to read that. I'll read parts of it next week. And we'll make some comments on some things in the creation. But I want to look at at it as a whole like I have looked at the book of Genesis as a whole today and I want you to understand what the creation story is saying to us we have studied the details of creation endlessly in fact we've studied the details so much 
that we've turned our focus to the details and we've lost the overarching message of the creation. We have these major disputes going on concerning the details of creation as though we think Moses was trying to tell us something. We just got to figure out what he was telling us. And we're at massive disagreement with one another at what that might be. We've got a group called Young Earth Creationists that claim that based on their desire to take the Bible literally, therefore, they date the creation at 4004 B.C., Bishop James Usher was responsible for that date, and they cling tenaciously to that. Usher was a 17th century Irish bishop. He's renowned for claiming to have calculated the precise date of creation. Get this, people. From his exhaustive studies, he says that the world was created on Sunday, October 23rd. 4004 B.C. So we have an anniversary coming up in a few weeks. <laughs> using the same method of calculating, partly by using chronologies in the Bible, Usher also, you might find this interesting, has also calculated that Adam and Eve were driven from paradise on Monday, November 10th. And we'll be celebrating that one of these days. And he's calculated that the ark touched down on Mount Ararat on May 5th, 2348 B.C., which happened to be on a Wednesday. And how he comes up with this is just amazing. But once again, relying on chronologies, which chronologies are full of gaps... You have to immediately see the error of trying to come down to uh, a specific day and a specific year when those chronologies are not reliable as we use chronologies. They have skips and gaps in them that don't allow us to come down with that kind of accuracy. Now, old earth proponents are the opposite of young earth creationists, and they propose sometimes trying to reconcile what science is telling us with uh, what the Bible teaches about creation. And if the Bible says in the beginning God created heaven and the earth and, and, and then he created uh, man and then he created Adam and Eve and then they had children, how in the world do you get back millions of years with it looks like life dinosaurs and things that seeming with fossilized life that predates 6,000 years ago. How, how do you... So some come up with what they call a gap theory and a gap theory merely tries to insert a, a, an unspecified gap of time between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the gap theory says that he created it in a perfect form. He didn't create it in chaos. He created it in a perfect form. And the earth was void without form. They manipulate the Hebrew word to say and the earth became void without form. Therefore indicating between verse 1 when it was created perfect and verse 2 where it turned into turmoil and it turned into chaos. There must have been a span of time there that caused something to disrupt this perfect creation of God, then he starts the rest of the chapter in the recreation process. That's the gap theory. And then other old earth uh, creation 
proponents try to reconcile the difference between the data brought to us by science and the account in Genesis uh, by uh, <clears throat> turning to theistic evolution. And we have theistic evolutionists that firmly believe in God but also embrace the uh, theory of evolution and believing that <clears throat> if we are in the state we are in today because we have evolved to this state, it's only because God, the creator, guided the whole process. So you see you've got these three right here that if you want to pick and choose today, have at it. But the point is, Moses didn't tell us clearly, did he? The point is, Moses didn't divulge clearly that data to us because that wasn't his purpose in writing Genesis. He was not writing a science textbook that would give us the answers to questions we will have until we go see God. We won't get answers to this. We can speculate. We can play around with it. We can have fun picking your favorite one. And, and of course, I, I've gotten to the point where, where now my my theology about, the, uh, about God and about creation and about is uh, God created man, we messed up, he provided a way to get saved and he's coming back again. And I can't go wrong with that. All the other details, I just can't get it ironed out to where everybody believes what I believe. There's always somebody that argues with us. I'm, I'm done arguing. How many of you believe he's coming back? Okay, we got unanimity today. <laughs> I love unanimity. So the first thing that we learn about the creation story, if you look at it in an overarching view, is God is sovereign. In the day and age when fallen humanity has put forth some of the most outlandish tales about various detail, deities that they, they worshipped, and, and their own version of creation. And that's what existed in Moses' day. The author of Genesis, Moses, put down the only written account we have that pays homage to the one true living God. He did this to oppose the more humanistic philosophies and natural, the, the, the philosophy that natural laws govern this world. Natural laws have been set in motion by God. They are not self existent and self-governing whatever natural laws we have it's because God put them there and this account of the creation stresses very powerfully and very clearly God is sovereign the second thing that the creation tells us about God is all creation is undeniably dependent on God see the creation story expresses the prevailing attitude of the ancient Jewish culture. Wouldn't you just love to get inside their minds and know what they thought about God and what the relationship with him was and how they revered him? The ancient Jewish culture, they, they had a much different uh, recognition and appreciation of God and for God than we do. We become very lax about God. We've become maybe somewhat disrespectful of God, whereas, whereas in the Jewish culture, they had a much higher level of respect built into their culture. It doesn't mean on an individual basis they were more moral than we were. They made a lot of moral, uh, bad moral choices. But they had this level of respect built into their culture. 
Where they couldn't even speak the name of God. They couldn't write the name of God. It was dishonoring to him to do that. Whereas today, people use the name of God in vain. You can see the difference in our attitudes, in our cultures, between the way they view God and the way we view God. In Moses writing this, he expresses the prevailing cultural attitude that they had about God. And that, and that is that God is indeed in control of everything. Now, I don't know what your philosophy about God is. You've got the one extreme where people believe that if they believe in God, that he just more or less gave it a spin, and he backs off, and now he watches it run. Kind of like giving a top a spin. But he's not interfering with anything. I remember when I was only about 8, 9, 10 years old, I was out in the evening. It was dusk. And we were allowed to play outside past dark in those days. Our neighborhood was safe. And so I was with a couple of my neighborhood playmates, friends, and somehow we got to talking about God and church and Sunday school. Uh, I think I contributed to those kind of conversations quite often when I was that age. So the, one of them said, well, you know what? We learned in Sunday school. He, he went to uh, the, the big United Methodist Church in town. Uh, and he said, it was the most interesting thing. Our Sunday school teacher taught us that nature just does what nature's going to do, that God doesn't stop storms, and God doesn't stop tornadoes, and God doesn't stop floods. It's just, you don't need to pray for that kind of stuff because it's just, it's just the order of nature, and that's what happens. And he thought that was really neat to learn that in Sunday school. And even at the tender age of 8, 9, 10 years old, I didn't think it was neat at all. That wasn't the God I thought I was serving. That wasn't the God that speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey. That wasn't the God that creates the fire and removes the fire. That was the God. He's the God of, of every element. He's the God of the stars. He's the God of the dust. He's the God of the trees. He's the God of the rocks. If we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. This is the God I serve. And the God that he was serving doesn't get in the way of natural disasters because, after all, it's been put into motion. That upset me back then. I still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> But you know a lot of people that believe that even today. That, that theory is very popular. There's a God out there, but what, what's he care about us? Why pray? Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Just kind of a fatalistic uh, outlook on life. There's nothing in the creation story that glorifies natural laws as responsible for creation. The whole creation story is about this was caused by the great cause. The uncaused first cause, as they like to say in apologetics. God created all things. Well, who created God? You don't understand the definition of God. He's the uncaused first cause. Nobody created him. He wouldn't be God if they did. The very definition of God is he's uncaused. And there's nothing in the creation story that honors and elevates natural laws. Paul, uh, uh, Moses did not write that so that we would go away and say, wow, that mother nature really is something, huh? No, we go away and we glorify God. That's what Moses was saying to those people in the book of Deuteronomy. Think about your history. Think about the creation. Think about the deliverance. Think about the interference of God. Can, have, you, have you ever in your life seen anything like this? 
it all magnifies God. So this concept that everything in this creation story points to God as the ultimate engineer and the source of everything and the, and the, and the first cause, that literally formed the theology for the Jews. Even though they recognized there were natural laws, they believed the natural laws were only useful insofar as God allowed them to operate. And when he wanted to suspend natural law, he was free to do that. As whenever the, they prayed for the sun to stand still so they could have a little more day to fight the battle. And, of course, we understand that's just an expression. It's just a figure of speech. You do the same thing when you talk about the sunrise. And we don't make fun of you and say, well, silly you, the sun doesn't rise. The earth rotates. But it's just a figure of speech. When they're talking about the sun standing still, it's talking about a suspension of the natural law of things so that there was created more daylight than there normally would be. So natural law is good as long as God allows it to operate, and then when he says, we're not going to do it that way anymore, all nature has to obey God. He's in charge. The Jews understood that. The Jews knew, and they believed, that nothing in this world or this universe operated independent of God. But in our culture today, people are sometimes confused as to the difference between natural occurrences and miraculous intervention by God. You know that. You've probably got family. You've got friends. You've got acquaintances that you try to tell them about some miracle and the old skeptic in them rises up and say, that wasn't a miracle. That was just a, a, an accident. It just, just a happenstance. It just occurred. You try to tell them, you know, that you, you, you came down with cancer. You went to the hospital. You were given so many days to live. The doctors operated, and now you've, you've got 40 years behind you. And what a miracle that was. That wasn't a miracle. It was the doctors. It was technology. You try to tell them about having a, a, a severe headache, and, and somebody laid hands on you, and the headache was gone. They said, well, that happens every once in a while. Things just change. The, 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 the chemistry of your body, they always try to explain it away because they don't understand that the difference between a miracle that God does and trying to explain things away naturally. If we pray for rain and it rains, they say, well, that was just circumstantial. We believe God answered a prayer. They believe the weather pattern changed. You know, I had a, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house when I was down in Alabama. They've visited my house numbers of times over the years. Not the same pair of <laughs> different sets every time, you know. It's not like they follow me from Alabama, Missouri to California to Iowa to keep showing up. <laughs> Haven't I seen you somewhere before? So here's this. They always travel in pairs, right? And so they show up at my house, and we have our typical, it never goes good. They never leave happy. So after we had said our piece and figured out we were not going to find common ground, then they decided they were going to jump in their car and leave. So they got in their car, and they hit the start, and it wouldn't start. So I thought, well, I can't leave these poor people stranded here. They don't like it here. 
So I watched for a while. I thought, it's going to fire off here in a minute. And they cranked and cranked, and it wasn't going to go. Finally, I went out there. <laughs> they hated to see me coming. We were not parting on great terms. So I come out there, and I said, well, I can see you have some car trouble. I said, now, do you believe God answers prayer? Well, they wouldn't answer that. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, could I just pray that God intervenes here and starts your car and gets you going? They didn't want that either. They're reluctant to cooperate with my kind in any way, shape, or form. I said, let me try this. So I just paused and I said a quick prayer. I said, God, you can see this car is broken and these people need to get started and get going. I said, try it. It fired right up. They jumped in and drove out of there. Couldn't get away quick enough. There was not even a thank you or a goodbye. Something spooky going on over there. Now I want to tell you, God doesn't do that for me as often as I want him to. But when he does, it's so fun. And of course the skeptic's going to ex explain that away. But I have an attitude like the Jews does. God's in charge of everything. He's not out of charge of anything. God's in control of everything. And, and I, I think sometimes we don't give God enough credit. To the Jewish mindset, you understand? I said, let's get inside the Jew's mind. To the Jewish mindset, there were no accidents. Is that your philosophy of God? You think things are accidental, or do you think he knew it was coming? Do you think anything snuck up on him? There were no accidents. There were no coincidences. God was in control over all. Nothing operated independent of God. And that's what the creation story expresses. There was nothing accidental about creation. Evolution is all accidental. There's nothing planned about it. But we don't see, we see intelligent design in creation. We see purpose in creation. And Moses wrote this to demonstrate that God is in charge. God is in control. This is not an accidental collision of atoms and molecules that spontaneously created life and life just evolved. There's intelligence behind this. And while Moses doesn't tell us the details of time and manners in which it was done, he tells us one thing. God did it. That's his important point. While pagan accounts... of creation and, and nature define their gods by their association with nature. The sun god, the moon god, the ocean god, the thunder god, the harvest god, the rain god. The creation story pictures God as the creator of all nature and the director of all nature. The third thing we learn is God alone is divine. The creation narrative clearly demonstrates God's divinity while conspicuously refusing to attribute divinity to any part of creation. The trees are not holy. The earth is not holy. The sun is not holy. The moon is not holy. God is holy. God is divine. And Moses' account clearly depicts that. Whereas other pagan writings tried to make deities out of these things, Moses wrote this to say, there is no other God. It, the creator is the God. It is the only God. 
to the readers contemporary to Moses, this would have been a glaringly obvious characteristic of the biblical creation narrative, standing in stark contrast to all the other man-made religions that existed in that day that believed nature had divine qualities. Pagan religions might view natural catastrophes as nature taking vengeance on man. Somebody offended Mother Nature, and now we've got this volcano to deal with. Who made the rain gods mad? Now we've got floods. As though nature has the ability to judge and the ability to be offended. And Moses' account sweeps away all of that pagan belief in those days. There's nothing about the creation narrative that attributes divinity to that which was created, only to the creator. So we introduce God. That's what Moses was doing. He was reintroducing God to a pagan world who had lost sight of him. And until Moses put this account down in Genesis, there was no other permanent written record existing in those days tracing Jehovah God back to the creation. Other pagan literature had already been written and was very popular in that day. But they didn't know who the true and living God was. And most prominent among some of those writings were the tale of Adapa. The Atrahasis epic, the Enuma Elish, the Gilgamesh epic, which may be familiar to some of you, which is the more popular, more well-known of all these. Each of these featuring highly confusing tales of mythology that offer some explanations of the origins of human earth. Let me just give you a quick synopsis of these. It'll take just a moment. The tale of Adapa. Adapa is a human priest. Part of the, uh, he's, he's uh, representing the mythological god Ea. He supposedly brought civilizing skills to humanity, but when he was summoned to come before another god, Anu, he was told, don't eat the food of the god Anu. If you eat the food of gods, something bad is going to happen to you. So he goes and visits Anu, and he refuses by direction not to eat the food of the god. And come to find out, he missed the boat because the food if he had eaten it, it would give him eternal life. So he goes and visits the God, refuses to eat the food of eternal life, and he comes back and he's still mortal. That's the story. That's the pagan story that goes along with creation and trying to explain all that this is going around. Can you imagine? And then you got the uh, Atrahasis epic, the gods in this story, the lower gods, the little gods, the inferior gods, they're doing all the work. The big gods are just sitting up there watching the little gods do work. So the little gods get tired of working. They decide, well, let's, let's uh, uh, pass this off to human beings. So they recruit humans to do their work, and they created these humans to do this work for them. And then these humans begin to proliferate. This rapidly increasing population of humans... The God said, what have we done? These people are making so much noise, we can't get any rest. So the gods decided these noisy humans that they created are, are just a pestilence. And they sent droughts, they sent plagues, they sent famines to reduce the population. And finally, they sent this major flood, which you know what that refers to.
But they had a king, and the king built a boat, and he survived the flood. The Gilgamesh epic, probably the most well-known of any of these. Uh, king Gilgamesh is on the search for immortality. And in his quest for finding how he can live forever and never die, he comes to this being that used to be a mortal man, but has now passed into immortality and achieved that. And this, uh, I don't want to have to say his name repeatedly, so listen carefully. Utnapishtim. Do not name your child Utnapishtim. I cannot even think of a shortened version of that that would be lovely. Upnatpishtim tells Gilgamesh his own version of the story of the flood and how he had built a boat and survived. And because he built a boat and survived, he was rewarded with eternal immortality. And then he tells Gilgamesh, now, if you go back at the bottom of the sea, there's a plant that if you can find that plant and eat of that plant, you too can have eternal life. So Gilgamesh goes in search of that plant. But before he can get it, he's eaten by a giant serpent. And these are the kind of accounts that had been written by fallen man from the day that Adam and Eve were created and they knew who God was and they walked in the garden with him and they saw him slay the animal and cover them with skins of animals and they told their sons you must make sacrifices to this God. Cain strayed from that and decided animal sacrifices were not sufficient. He'll just bring his kiwis. And it didn't make, it just, it, they began to stray from the pattern until they got to the point where nobody knew God. And they created these, these weird stories that everybody believed them. As ridiculous as they are, these were the prevailing theories and philosophies of people in those days. And Moses said, I've got to put the record down. I've got to tell the truth. This is not going to work for all mankind. They have to know that God is speaking to man today, that he has spoken through Abraham, that he's reaching out to mankind through this new covenant. I have to put this down. The truth must be told. So he puts it down, how God is revealing himself to humanity through Abraham. You see, Abraham knew God firsthand. He met him. And Abraham taught Isaac about God. And Isaac taught Jacob about God. And Jacob taught his sons about God. And Joseph, when he was carried off into Egyptian bondage, he knew God. And then they moved the whole family into Egypt. But after they've been in Egypt, some say 415 years, but it's disputed. We know it's more than 200 years. Once again, the messy genealogies. But after they had been in Egypt for a while, and they had heard about this God, but they were now in slaves, they began to doubt who this God is. Where is this God that has allowed us with the people of the promise, the people of the covenant, the people of hope, to come and be slaves forever to these Egyptians? Where is this God? 
until God once again said, I must reintroduce myself to these people. And he picked out an adopted child of the ruler of Egypt and said, I'll speak through this man. And through the whole course of events of Moses being uh, chased out of Egypt in defense of his own Hebrew people, he finally gains the maturity and the courage and the will to go back and say, I am here to reintroduce you to the God you have forgotten. And it was that God that led them out of Egypt and said, I am the Lord thy God and led them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and provided for them in the wilderness because it was all about God revealing himself to people who had forgotten completely about him. Moses had the personal encounter with God. Abraham had the personal encounter with God. Jacob had the personal encounter with God. And Moses wanted to permanently memorialize and document the case for the one true living God so all generations may know him. Wouldn't we be a mess if we were stuck with the epic of Gilgamesh? I'm convinced what America needs today is to get reacquainted with God. I'm convinced we need a divine encounter to learn afresh the holiness and the majesty of our creator. America's forgetting him. We've marginalized him. As one commentator, Bible commentator stated, he said, we in America have not necessarily replaced him with other gods. Our biggest fault is we've made him a mere figurehead. There's a God, but what does he care? An impersonal deity who gave the universe this spin and just sits back to watch it run without any personal interaction, but that's not God. He's reaching out to us. He desires our closest fellowship. He's calling. We need to draw close to him again in our nation, in our churches, in our personal lives. On every level I can think of, we need a fresh experience with God. Heavenly Father, whatever it takes, God, for this nation to once again recognize you, we pray for that.